there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RTE News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me here in studio is our political correspondent, Michal Ahan, and Titi Gower correspondent as well. But we are starting the podcast in a slightly different way. Um, we are starting on the subject of Ukraine, and we have the Fine Gael Senator, Barry Ward, who is on the line uh, to us from Ukraine. Barry, can you tell us um, what have you been seeing, what have you been doing today and what have you been seeing on the ground? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. I'm here with Senator Gerrit O'Hearn. The two of us have travelled out as part of an Irish parliamentary delegation with a group called uh, United for Ukraine, which I've been involved in. And one of the things they've been doing is organising for parliamentarians, particularly from Europe, but also from around the world, to visit Ukraine in hopefully controlled conditions to see and to witness what has happened. So earlier today, we visited uh, Bucha, the infamous site of the mass graves, and saw where they had discovered 107 ordinary civilians from an ordinary suburb of Kiev who'd been uh, shot and tortured. Um, and then we also went to Bardianka, and, which is a little bit further out from Kiev, which had suffered extraordinary and uh, huge damage from shelling from Russians. And as you stand in Bardianka, particularly, you can there's a taste of burning material in your mouth. It's it's still very very fresh here. Um, but the important thing is that we've come both to see what's happening but also to express our solidarity with Ukraine as they are still uh, fighting the Russians and still trying to repel that uh, illegal invasion. Earlier on this week, the um, Cabinet, um, according to the Justice Minister Helen McEntee, said that the government was going to back a centralised European depository for evidence collected of international war crimes in Ukraine. And that's something which is a pan-European thing. What was it like going to Bucha? It's a place that we've heard so much about. And yet, I guess, the second question, you're a lawyer yourself. Um, how confident can anyone be that war crimes have been committed when the evidence is still being collected? Well, firstly, in respect to Bucha, um, the, where the actual graves were has now been filled in, but you can still see the site. The plans the Ukrainians tell us is never to build on that site, that it'll become a permanent memorial to the people who were executed there. Uh, in the St. Andre's Church, which is right next door to it, and a new church, 24 years old, they have set up an exhibition there, and they have lots of photographs, including photographs of Ursula von der Leyen visiting the site. And what's really striking about them is that those photographs show, show people, ordinary people, and many of them older rather than younger, because... There were, the population of Bucha was about 45 to 50,000 people. At the time that the Russian invasion hit Bucha, there were only about three, 4,000 people left there. Many of those people were people who would not or could not leave. Those photographs in the church now show an ordinary suburban house and in front of it, uh, the body of an elderly lady lying in the gutter. Or uh, again, an ordinary streetscape and somebody lying there with their hands tied behind their back. So it's it's pretty harrowing, to be perfectly honest with you. It's very upsetting. Um, and, you know, the prosecution of war crimes is never easy. Um, I'm counseled before the International Criminal Court, but it's, it's something that is hugely complex. And it is absolutely appropriate that Europe take a lead in gathering evidence, because that's what will decide whether they ultimately achieve convictions or not. But it's not something we should prejudge, but it's definitely something we should prepare for. And it's, it, as I say, it's, it's important that Ireland lead in terms of that uh, 
and, and help to establish a repository of evidence because that will be what will be the ultimate decider whether convictions follow or not. And how confident how confident are you that um, this uh, parliamentary delegation is helpful? We have heard um, Timmy Dooley, um, the Fianna Fáil senator, has already been out there. We know that the Cowan Corlin, the Carhirlach, the Shannon are heading out there. How helpful are those visits in your view to see things on the ground? Because um, to be frank, sometimes there's been criticism of Irish politicians travelling to Ukraine for these reasons. Yeah, and I thought carefully about this. I actually had a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago and I was kind of saying, well, what could I do to help? And if I could do something, what would I do? And, and shortly after that, um, the uh, United for Ukraine asked me if I would go. And so we're part of a group of 20 parliamentarians. The, we, there are representatives here from Lithuania, Poland, Italy, uh, Austria, lots of European countries, Canada and the United States here as well. Um, we were greeted by um, Ukrainian MPs this morning um, and you know, they have made it very clear that they think these visits are very important. This is different. As far as I know, we're the first parliament, Irish parliamentarians to visit Kyiv since uh, since the invasion. Um, and we are here as part of an organized group. And the Ukrainians think this is very important. We have a series of meetings, for example, coming as well. Um, I'm not supposed to give you the details of who they're with, but with various figures. Um, and, and it will be important for us to hear what they have to say. They consider it very important, and they have made it very clear to us that it's also a very important morale booster for um, people in, in officialdom, but also for the armed forces, for the people of Ukraine, that they see not, not Barry Ward and Garrett Hearn coming in. You know, they don't think that necessarily makes a difference, but they see their neighbours from around the world, particularly their neighbours from Europe, saying, we're with you, we are willing to come and listen to you, we believe you, we see what has happened and, and we're standing by you and that's the, perhaps the most important aspect of this visit here. The um, Finnegan Foreign Minister uh, Simon Coveney was in the Doyle um, only the, this afternoon where he was speaking about how um, when it came to Bucha um, the Irish government's position is that the perpetrators of the actions um, must uh, be prosecuted, that they must face justice. Um, what is your expectation that that will actually happen ever? Um, I don't. I don't know. To be perfectly honest with you, because the perpetrators involved will obviously have to be traced. But there was a steely determinism in Butcher when we were there, speaking to people who were. I mean, that, that term first responded, but they were the people who came and discovered bodies and picked up bodies, and they're still in the process of identifying all of them. 107 bodies were found in Butcher. The 10% of them they still haven't identified. So they have. T- they, they were forensic experts out last week that took forensic samples to identify those bodies. But there is a steely determination amongst the people of Butcher that they will find the people responsible for this and they will ensure that they face justice. Now, that is not just Ukraine's job. That is the job of the global community. Ireland and signatories and members of the International Criminal Court have to play it, their role in that. And, you know, I think when you have... A, one of the, the, I suppose, the features of this conflict is that it has united the world in a way that very few uh, international issues do. When you have that determination from the countries of the world, I would have a much greater hope that there will actually be results and there will actually be tangible convictions or um, there will be actual justice at the end of it. But it is probably a distance off, um, and, and but we will have to play a role and I certainly hope that, that um, those people do face justice because if you stand on the site of those mass graves, as you stand in cities that are destroyed, and as, even as you drive along the road, buildings in cinders, whole shopping centres um, absolutely destroyed by aerial bombardment. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's it, it's very it's very physical, it's very visceral, um, and I've been in conflict zones before, but there is something really personal about this. I mean, in in um, in cities where you have residential 
apartment blocks, six, seven, ten stories high, private houses where people have invested their money, they were paying mortgages, and they're destroyed. And those people are gone. They've either left Ukraine altogether or they're in neighboring villages. And it's, 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 an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary effect on you when you see it up close and personal. Fine again, Senator Barry Ward. Thank you very much for talking to us from Ukraine. Um, sir, can you read the, the TG Carragher and political correspondent? Simon Coveney was in the Doyle talking about Butcher. He'd been there himself. He'd visited um, the site, as had the Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley as part of an Aldi delegation. Um, but most of the debate in the Doyle was actually about sort of the domestic issue, which was how Ireland is dealing and assisting the 20, more than 27,000 Ukrainians who have come to Ireland as a result of the Russian invasion. Was there anything particularly new in it? Um, I don't think so, really. I think when we hear um, people that we know, the elected representatives speaking about their experiences of being in Bhutan and places like that and how awful it is when you experience it and just what we've heard Barry talking about there and what Simon Coveney was talking about in the Dáil, that it sort of brings it home to you how absolutely horrendous it is and how distressing it is and it sort of strengthens your resolve that we have to do something to help um, the Ukrainians who are coming here and listening to them talking about it in the Dáil, you realise what an enormous challenge it is. Like As you say, over 27,000 people now and trying to provide accommodation for them. I suppose we're great in our um, jobs anyway for always giving out about the governments and what they do, but you have to uh, admire the fact that up to now they have been able to provide some kind of accommodation, at least to all the people who've come here thus far. But by gosh, they really are up against it. And, you know, again, listening to Minister O'Gorman there today talking about, you know, going to religious, uh, using religious facilities, community halls, the place in Mill Street. It's just, it kind of, it, it outlines how challenging it's going to be for them to, keep on providing this accommodation for them, especially when there's not going to be any cap on numbers. We don't know at the end of the day how many people are going to come in here. What's your sense of it, Micheál? I mean, it was interesting to note that Owen O'Brien was um, leading the line for Sinn Féin and he was quite uh, complimentary in relation to the government's uh, reaction up to this point um, and was saying, I can see that you're doing your best, but the key thing he was trying to say was that you need to keep this separation between giving some form of accommodation assistance to Ukrainian refugees, right and proper thing to do, and at the same time being able to deal with the housing crisis which um, existed long before the people from Ukraine ever arrived. Is it possible to continue to do? Yeah, and there was, despite the kind of fairly cooperative approach across the Dáil, that was the, the point of tension and some criticism of the government for giving the impression at least that things like the void properties, the vacant uh, local authority houses at the moment that they could be put back into use and was there a feeling that that could be uh, to house people from Ukraine. Uh, Governments since taking a different view on that also in relation to changes to the Fair Deal scheme was that to try and increase housing for people coming from Ukraine. That was the initial impression. Then that changed. They seem to be part of a number of measures that are about increasing housing generally. But I think overall there was a sense that government are doing their best on this one, 11,500 hotel beds uh, being sourced by government so far. And then there was those interesting statistics, which we've heard before, but when you you set them out around the pledges, the the tens of thousands, nearly 30,000 pledges, but about 6,000 to them have been withdrawn and about 13,000 people who were phoned 
they weren't there to, to take the call. So it's actually a very small number, only about 740 people who've gone into those uh, pledged accommodation offers so far. And again, from the opposition, a call that you really should look, they say, to holiday homes, that that is the way of securing a, a lot of accommodation uh, quickly. And again, the issue of the payment then comes back into view, something that ministers today say remains under active consideration, a payment for people who are offering their homes uh, for this. Yeah, I mean, that's something that stems, I think, it was the Refugee Council who had been recommending it, that one way to get out of this instead of trying to build stuff or or develop modular homes, which I think is coming under uh, the control of the Minister of State, Patrick O'Donovan. He's the person who's been um, leading the line on that one. Um, holiday homes, they're already built and they're yeah. there. And why don't you go after them? Um, you know, it seems like a, a, a smart thing to do. Yeah, especially because, uh, what is it, they're saying at least 6,000 homes might be available to them if they did that. And you'd imagine that if they went down the route of providing some um, payment to people who were offering to make these homes available, that might make it more attractive to people now that the whole issue about the cost of living becoming such a problem for people. Well, look, here's a way of paying for extra electricity bills and heating bills that would be run up if they did offer the house to um, people from Ukraine. So I'd imagine that that's going to become more of an issue as the weeks go on and as they're trying to attra- attract more people to doing that. There's, there's also the point raised about very skilled people who want to work, uh, but with some jobs would need the equivalent of Garda vetting. That's an impossibility uh, given that they can't get anything like that from Ukraine at the moment. So a solution has to be found to that for, for people uh, who, who have skills and who can work. Another thing raised uh, by Martin Kenny, the, the Sinn Féin, spokesperson saying that there are particular tourist areas, uh, coastal areas in particular, where hotels and B&Bs are now full before you come into the tourist season. And that's creating a certain worry uh, that there won't be any spaces available for tourism, which could have a kick, an impact on the local economy. Yeah. Again, another pressure point uh, raised. It's going to be complicated. Um, let's switch to another, uh, maybe sort of easier to understand issue, the National Maternity Hospital, because you um, sorry, you've got the government on one side and mm-hmm. you've got the opposition on the other and it doesn't look as if there's going to be an accommodation or compromise on it. No, I don't think so. And um, again, the opposition asking again and again in the doll today, why can't the government buy the property? Why can't they have it under, under full state ownership and the government making the point? Well, this 300 year lease is as good as and I thought it was funny that you know, we heard the Taoiseach making that point yesterday and Eamon Ryan and the Dáil today saying that it was akin to that and even at no a No material difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Eamon Ryan, or, sorry, Stephen Donnelly, the um, health minister, then at a doorstep saying that the advice they had got from the attorney general uh, about a compulsory purchase order was that the courts would just view the 300 year lead, uh, 300 year lease as being akin to state ownership so that there was no point in going down that route either. So it seems that um, and the big argument then about if you did have to go through a CPO um, route that it would take so long that we'd be waiting years and years and years for the hospital, which there's an urgency now for the National Children's Hospital to be built. So I think that the government is pushing that line, you know, look, we need to get on with this and just get it built. And I don't think the opposition are going to be satisfied with the lease. So I can't see them coming to an agreement in two weeks time. Yeah, I mean, how do you read this? There seems to be three issues in, in contention. One is the question of the lease or whether it should be state-owned land. One is clinical independence or will there be undue influence? And the third issue is the requirement and need, the urgency of building a new hospital because the conditions as currently exist at Hollow Street are, are pretty poor given all of the descriptions we're, we're hearing. 
to what extent do you believe the government is open to um, change anything with regard to those issues over the next two weeks? Because we hear that, you know, Minister Donnelly's going to go before the Oireachtas Committee. We hear there's going to be a Doyle debate next week. But are they really open to change? No, I don't think so. No, I think it's very clear. Government believe this is, they can clarify matters as they see it. Even though we've had those clarifications, I think insofar as they're going to go over the last two days anyway. And it's about communicating their point of view on this. But the opposition, if anything, are becoming more entrenched, particularly on that point of the state investing up to a billion euro on a site. Yes, there is a long term lease on a 300 euro lease, but it isn't publicly state owned land. And that is something that that is sparking much opposition. And if anything, I think that's going to intensify in the week ahead. I suppose Eamon Ryan's Central point today is that it's going to take until about 2030 anyway to build this hospital if this plan gets the green light. If that weren't to happen, well, then it could be 15 to 20 years if it was a matter of going back to the drawing board. I think ultimately government are going to make a decision on this uh, that they believe if they go ahead, that when the construction gets underway, that the debate will cease. However, I, I given the depth of feeling voiced again in the chamber this morning, I think this could linger and there could be a sense of dispute about this for a long time. Do you agree, M. Sirk, on this one? I mean, Michael Martin, we believe, was telling his parliamentary party um, TDs and senators last night that the discussions need to be brought to a close and they need to get this done. And that sounds very much like we're just going to, we'll do what we can in two weeks to explain things, but we're not for moving on it. Yeah, well, I suppose one of the points that they were making today as well um, is that in other voluntary hospitals that are uh, maternity hospitals around the country, you know, where abortion services, for example, are being offered or being carried out, um, that they would be run on a similar model. And they're trying to make the point, look, there are some state owned hospitals that don't offer these services, yet the ones that have uh, that are what we call voluntary hospitals, they are providing all these services. So they're saying, look, if we can already provide them and other hospitals that'll be run along the same lines where we don't own, where the state doesn't own the land, well, what's the problem going to be? I think it's going to boil down to public opinion and whether people are going to be as caught up in the minutia of the argument, perhaps as the rest of us, or whether people are just going to say, look, we need this hospital, just get on with it and build it. You know, who cares what's going to happen in 300 years' time? Um, you know, just one other um, issue that was up this week. Um, Robert Watt was um, before committee um, in relation to that um, botched appointment of this chief medical officer to a professorship in Trinity College Dublin. What did you, you make of the exchanges um, as you were f- following that closely yesterday? Yeah, I know Robert Watt was accused by David Cullinan of losing the run of himself in general terms. I think at the committee yesterday he didn't, though. It was more akin to a kind of an Italian defensive approach where someone could be, could be passionate but not emotional and that seemed to hold uh, for the duration. There were fairly strong attacks in his direction, really not much said to Tony Hulan throughout the meeting apart from John Lahart asking would he contemplate such a role, a similar role again and he not quite shutting the door on that. But Robert Watt, taken to task really for what politicians were, believe him overstepping the mark in putting this proposal together that would have seen Tony Hulan move to Trinity and putting the funding in place for it. His point repeatedly, even though they're saying, describing it as retrospective engineering was that 
no, he wasn't doing that. What he was doing was putting a letter of intent in place that ultimately would have required ministerial approval before anything could happen because that would happen in the estimates process. But the, the fairly wise uh, Fine Gael TD on these matters, Colin Burke, a uh, solicitor of some note, and in this particular area said, if you send a letter like that, that one that did offer €2 million Euro in annual funding, uh, he said it's a commitment. And if the other side agree to it, well, it's tantamount to a contract. Robert Watt taking a very different view on that. Does it do enough to put the fire out on this? Well, I think it's going to linger to some extent. I think well, Robert Watt... I asked the questions here. Yeah, well, <laughs> rhetorical. Uh, I think it, it will linger to, to some extent. And Robert Watt will be an ongoing source of controversy for politicians anyway, no matter what committee he appears before. But in the handling of yesterday alone, uh, I thought, yes, they got plenty punches and landed plenty punches on him, but he probably walks out of that and just about kept it all together, even after Mark McSharry went in uh, with studs showing uh, and uh, and. La- did some serious damage, but there was before a slam on the door before slamming the door himself. Um, just before we go, um, sir, can you read that? We did hear about a departure, and um, the general election may be some time away, but um, someone isn't standing. Who is that, and why? Yeah, that uh, person I have great uh, time for, Joe McHugh, the Donegal TD. That's right, the man who famously went and learned Irish once he became minister for the Gaeltacht and. Uh, managed to use that to his advantage and to win a lot of sympathy in that journey and uh, in fairness he's been great for doing interviews for us for Nuacht or TNTG Car ever since and I'm sorry to see him go as a result and I'm sure now you know look, I was looking at the figures yesterday in the last election Fine Gael only got 13% of the vote uh, compared to Sinn Féin who got 45% of first preference vote so I'm sure uh, Joe McHugh was looking at those figures as well for the last two years and looking at the controversy that happened with Micah and everything else which still hasn't been put to bed despite um, him saying in an interview for us yesterday that he was happy that the legislation on that would be gone through the houses of the Oireachtas before the summer and that that issue would be resolved but I'm sure lots of people in Donegal would have uh, Words would would be contradicting that anyway. Yeah, what do you make of it? I believe that it was already prearranged, but the Fine Gael leader and Thonish, the Labour Radcar, is heading up to Donegal this weekend. Yeah, but it, Joe McHugh is one of the big figures in the party. He's around here for 20 years, if you include his time in the Shannon. So it is a blow to Leo Radcar. I mean, if you, they won 35 seats at the last election, on Murphy's already exited the fold. Now you've confirmation that Joe McHugh won't be there the next time either. I think it does show the challenge facing Fine Gael, particularly in many of those rural constituencies. Uh, Donegal, also in Munster, where they have continued to lose seats over the last election. I think, uh, unfortunate perhaps to link Joe McHugh to turf, but that's why Leo Varadkar is continuing last night at the parliamentary party to say there can be no changes to those turf regulations uh, without full sign-off from government. It shows the pressure around the rural constituencies that Fine Gael is facing now. And the last, last, last question, Micah, is that gone away? No, it isn't gone away. I mean, Michal Martin was in Donegal a few weeks ago and met the campaigners and had a fairly detailed meeting. So the heat seems to have got out of the issue, but I think that's only contingent upon a proposal and the legislation for the redress scheme going to Cabinet in a few weeks' time and satisfies uh, the requirements. And they are uh, go a lot more extensive than has been mentioned thus far. Michal Lahan, RT News' political correspondent. So can you read that? Nocht and Tijikaro correspondent. She's bilingual and does two jobs at the same time. Um, thank you very much for listening to your politics podcast uh, from RT News or joining us um, from television. If you're listening to the podcast, please do um, sign up. Please do leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. But until next week, take care.